1: So on this week's canny cross conversations we talk to laura the uh, menopause dietitian, about menopause and nutrition and this is a really big thing and i think because Cannycross tends to be uh mainly female sorry all you guys out there but it is mainly female and um Probably most people over 40. And again, I'm making a huge assumption there, but, you know, from from, from the um, figures that we, we know of. So we're talking to a lot of menopausal women, aren't we? And nutrition is a really big part of what we do.
0: It is. And, and we tend to overcomplicate it, don't we?
1: We do. Very we, much so. We
0: tend to worry that it's very difficult and we get a little bit overwhelmed with it. Um, and chatting to Laura today has actually, it's made me just calm down about the whole thing (laughs) and realise that we just need to be a little kinder to ourselves and accept that our bodies are going through change Um, and Laura talked about nutrition in a way that just made it all really simple.
1: It did and it's
0: yeah it is being
1: you're right it's being kind to ourselves but also understanding that things are changing and and we might need to change the way we do a few things but actually i mean i said it at the end of the podcast and i'll say it again now it's what i took away from it is we need to exercise and we need to eat a balanced diet and you know all the other things that are happening to us will it will help we don't need to make it complicated at all.
0: No, we don't. I mean, look, Laura yeah. does talk about, um, you know, if, if you do have questions about things such as, you know, what supplements we're taking, then she does She does mention a few in the podcast. So listen, listen out for those. But really, it's just about getting some balance, isn't it, into our yeah. diet.
1: And if you want to, um the, the one we did with Alex, wasn't it, it's the sports dietitian,
0: Um, Yeah, if you want to know a little bit more about Nutrition for Runners specifically, because this is menopause related, then do check out episode 18, which is Nutrition for Runners Made Simple. And if you're interested in hearing the other podcasts that we've recorded around the menopause, we chatted to Dr. Juliette Magratham, which is episode 43 about menopause in general. And we also did a fantastic episode with Karen Weir, about strength training and the menopause, which is episode 55. So do give those a listen too.
1: So go and listen, enjoy, and any questions, let us know.
0: Hello, welcome to this episode of Canny Cross Conversations. Today, we're really excited to have Laura Clark joining us. Laura is a registered dietitian she specialises in women's health and menopause. I'm really excited to chat to you today, Laura. So thanks for coming on. Would you like to um just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Uh yeah, sure. So hi everybody. Thank you very much for
2: uh having me. I uh as Michelle says, I'm a registered dietitian. I think um as a title, it probably doesn't do me many favors. It's got the word "die" in it for starters, which is slightly mm-hmm. depressing, uh, and the word "diets" as well. And I think, if anything, um, my ethos and what we'll probably delve into a little bit today is is kind of very much anti diet, really, in the traditional sense of the word. But my role, as I see it, is to really uh, take women by the hand and give them a sense of the science of nutrition, but really enabling them to translate that into um a way of life and a way in which they want to work with food um day to day so that they have a really happy healthy relationship with it um i have a background in the nhs and i left the nhs when my eldest started primary school and she's just started secondary school so um i've been working as a freelance dietitian now for a number of years and i really do a mix of things i work with people one to one um i deliver group programs uh online and I also do various workplace health uh, seminars and talks and workshops and various things like that. And I also get the opportunity to work with some brands and to do a bit of media and PR as well. So it's quite varied, keeps me out of trouble. Um, and yeah, it's nice to be able to have these opportunities to talk about nutrition. It's always going to be an emotive subject, isn't it? We all eat, so we all have an opinion.
0: Yes. Um, <laughs> and I think There's that's lot where... lots of it, information out there, isn't there?
2: Yeah, and I think that's where I've noticed a huge difference. You know, when I first qualified back in, you know, 2001, uh, so a very long time ago now, um, people used to come and see dietitians and um, healthcare professionals generally because they needed information and, they, and, and there was no other way to access it. And of course, now we have um, so much information available at the touch of a button and certainly within the nutrition landscape it's really difficult to navigate because there are a lot of people talking about nutrition, some of whom have no nutritional qualifications whatsoever. Um, and even within the nutrition qualification field, there are interpretations of data that can be quite uh, contrasting um, and interpreting the evidence base for nutrition is a skill in itself. And again, not all people talking about nutrition have that skill. So it's really difficult, I think, to navigate it and to get answers with clarity as to what is the "quote unquote" right thing to do for us and our bodies. And I totally, I'm totally
1: with you than that because I'm a qualified personal trainer, amongst other things, and we do a nutrition part of you know the course. But I would never ever advise people on nutrition because I have you know I have a basic knowledge, which. But I would wouldn't know what to to advise people. So I think you're right. There's so much information out there, and it's it's finding out what's what's right for you. And I suppose that's why we wanted to get you on, but also to talk about menopause. So we're obviously talking about running but you know menopause is you know a big part of a lot of our listeners lives so could we just do and we've we've got some podcasts on menopause but could we just a really quick definition of the menopause for those that haven't listened to the other two episodes which they need to go back and do
2: (laughs) yeah of course I think yeah let's set the set the scene I mean essentially menopause as we know is that retrospective diagnosis so it's essentially once you haven't um, had a period for 12 months you are said to um, have gone through the menopause characteristically therefore the menopause is going to be those low levels um, of reproductive hormones um, namely estrogen and um, progesterone so that's menopause but of course we know that in reaching that end point of menopause um, that can take a very different path for for women so perimenopause can be a few months it can be a, a long time it can be a number of years and the journey that that woman takes through perimenopause as her uh, reproductive hormones are fluctuating um and periods are becoming less frequent etc cetera, etc cetera, um is a huge spectrum isn't it we, we know that there are uh, n- a number of symptoms that are associated with the menopause that impact our Lifestyles and health in all sorts of ways. Everything from very common symptoms like hot flushes and and mood swings and brain fog, uh, to more complex in symptoms around our our mental health, our resilience, anxiety, um, and day to day things such as how we sleep uh, and how our joints feel, and and the list goes on. So I think it's important to recognise that perimenopause is is a huge part of that men- that menopausal transition and it's going to mean different things for different women.
1: I think that's the that's the thing, isn't it? And I know, I mean, I'm postmenopausal and I I don't I did have a hard time perimenopausal, but what I'm learning now, I wish I'd known earlier. <laughs> and nutrition is a, a thing, a big part of that. So why is and and this is probably too big a question, so you might want to <laughs> narrow it down, but why is diet or well, nutrition I, I don't know which word you want to use important as we go through the menopause
2: I suppose to answer that I would first of all say let's just take a step back and realize that we are entering as we said into menopause into that perimenopausal phase you know generally for most people in their 40s and so we are coming into that experience with a lived in body and a, and our own life experience and therefore whichever way, you want to say it, we will have some sort of a relationship with food Mm -hmm. and that will be very different for everybody. And so food, just like sleep, for example, is one of those anchor points um, that really helps to ground us in times of change. And so the first part of that question around why is diet and nutrition important in menopause is that it is just one of the fundamentals that helps us to function on a day-to-day basis. How we eat, when we eat, and what we eat have the ability to affect fundamentally how we function, how we feel, how energized we are, um, and how well-nourished we are, et cetera, et cetera. So at a very basic level, it does a huge amount. But of course... We don't spend all day, every day contemplating and and, um, thinking about food as the most important thing. It becomes second nature. It becomes just part of our habitual routines and habits. And so often by the time we reach our 40s, we are perhaps, um, you know, engaging with food in a certain way because that's just what we've always done. We have certain likes and dislikes around food. We have certain meals that we cook all the time. We, you know, we have habits, don't we, that we just don't really question because they're just sort of part of our, our, our tapestry, if you like. Um, whereas actually from a body perspective, going through a menopausal transition. Our nutritional needs do begin to change. Our body composition begins to change. So it is an opportunity to put our food under under the microscope and not in a really judgmental, critical, overpowering way, but really in a really empowering way to say, okay, well, my body is is going through change. It needs support. Nutrition is one of the arms that I can use to to help me through that. Um, But let's have a look at it. What have I got? You know, what are the pieces of the puzzle that I now sit with, um, having you know, as I say, navigated our own food journeys for the last you know three or four decades.
0: Yeah, I I love that positive slant that you put in on it there, Laura, because that brings us nicely onto our next question. Actually, because lots of women do complain about weight gain during the menopause, don't they? So, I mean, why is that first of all, and what do we perhaps need to be changing within our you know, food intake.
2: So again, I'm gonna say before we delve into answering that question, <laughs> the big one. <laughs> just wanna like pull back again and just go, right, can we just actually talk for a moment about The perception of weight gain generally in the society that we live in right Mm -hmm. which is generally seen as a hugely negative thing and something that fundamentally if we try hard enough Mm -hmm. we should be able to completely control and you know this podcast will live on forever in in the digital world but you know for context we're in 2023 We are in our 40s slash (laughs) 50s, therefore we grew up in the 80s and 90s. So we know how rife diet culture was back then just as it is now. And yes, it's taken on a slightly different form, but we have grown up with diet culture and weight stigma, et cetera, et cetera. So whilst there is messaging around weight and health, and yes, we can touch on that, um i i firmly believe and have evidence that actually the health messages around weight get completely overshadowed by this um this general wave of oh my god i'm aging that's also seen as quite negative obviously mm. I'm gaining weight. Oh my God. I need to do something about this. And it's kind of wrapped up in this, in this bow of kind of, oh, you know, will you have to because it's really important for your health? And actually, what we can see happens is that in the pursuit of weight loss, um, at all costs and this, this fear that we have around weight gain, particularly around our middles that we know is associated with menopause, we actually go into, for a lot of us, panic mode. We end up, With diets that lack nutritional quality, that lack balance and structure, we have really negative relationships with food. How we talk to ourselves deteriorates. How we see food suddenly becomes like this—like we're going into battle with it every day. Um, And yet, it's all wrapped up in this lovely little bow of, "Well, well, you know, you need to you need to take take this into consideration because it's really important for your health." And actually, fundamentally, we know that weight is not a behavior. And therefore, how we choose to nourish ourselves and the habits that we have, the sorts of foods that we eat, how we move our bodies. Which we are <laughs> you know, yeah. there we go. You know, I mean yeah. your community, right? That's a huge part of, of your world. Um, how we look after our mindsets, how we look after our rest and restoration. You know, all of these things play a part in health. Um and yet we are still faced with this messaging around uh, weight loss and this, you've got to cut this out and cut that out, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my kind of massive caveat. Yes, I'm very happy to move on to answer the question around what can we do and what can we tweak uh, when we notice that we gain weight. But I think that it's so important that we lay that foundation. And to your listeners, I would say, you know, that there, there are a couple of really really clear questions that you need to ask yourself if you are heading into your 40s having already had two or three decades of dieting and body bashing and feeling um, that your eating relationship has not been a particularly nourishing one now is not the time to go on another diet now is the time to take a pause and to really pull back and and look at the bigger picture and that's the whole essence of, of the group programs that I run yeah that it gives women the opportunity um, to do that but with structure and with a framework because doing that kind of work is quite big and quite scary and you can't just go off and do it you need to have a sense of how you begin that journey to improve your relationship with food. So that's the first question. Um, You know, if we notice that our weight has been relatively stable throughout our lives, apart from perhaps when we had a couple of kids, um, and then we notice that really without changing much in our diets and our exercise levels, that our weight does go up, there are certain things that we can do to help navigate that a little bit. But I think, again, it's really important to state that we will gain weight as we age. That's really, really normal. And again. this this notion that we have complete control over that we absolutely don't you know our weight is controlled by thousands of genes there is so much that's happening at a subconscious level that's not within our conscious control and fundamentally we know that 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 weight gain really is as a result of these declining levels of estrogen um and yes we can replace those through hormone replacement therapy and that does seem to help um to uh Curb a little bit of the extent of weight gain for some women, um, but again, it's it's not it's not the magic bullet um, by any stretch. I would say probably um, the, the the biggest things to consider is the fact that we don't utilize glucose or carbohydrates um, with the same efficiency as we did uh, w- when we were younger. But in your community we have women who are going to be using and needing a lot of carbohydrates to function and to do the sort of endurance um, training and running that they're doing so again we need to be really cautious with this messaging that you pick out around menopausal weight gain which is oh well you need to cut your carbs and you need to eat more protein because you're you know you're losing muscle mass as you sleep kind of thing um and so then what that translates into then is is really without any consideration of what our baseline protein requirement is, we suddenly get this message that we suddenly need to eat, shed loads more of it and replace, you know, um, put that in place of carbohydrate, um, which is a really mismatched strategy. So the advice has to be really individualized and we have to get comfortable with carbohydrates being probably the one nutrient that we do titrate quite a lot. Our protein intake can stay relatively stable each day, as can our fat intake, but it's really our carbs that go up and down because the amount of energy that we need from carbs is going to differ depending on the days when we've trained, days when we haven't, days when we've not slept well, days when we've slept better, when we're stressed, when we are multitasking, our brain will burn more glucose. So we have to get comfortable with titrating carbohydrate. And we're not generally trained on how to do that as women because a, it's complicated, but B, uh, we, we get messaging that we need to cut down on it. So yeah. we, we're, we're very fearful of it um, quite a lot of the time. But as a general rule of thumb, you have to look at your energy expenditure across the day, get a sense of when you're most active, when you're busiest, when you're multitasking, and you have to put your carbohydrates uh, around that. You yeah. know, we do not need as much carbohydrate for Netflix at 10 o'clock at night. Or whatever. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, and yet the way that I tend to see it working is that we squimp on carbohydrates earlier on in the day because we're fearful of them. And then we get that kind of floodgate analogy that happens usually around the witching hour of three minutes past three. Um, <laughs> and then we, we kind of end, you know, we, we sort of just dive into this abyss of like. Chocolate. You know, yeah, like <laughs> picking on the, the pre-dinner before the dinner you know just dinner's a bit of a blur then we've got the after dinner thing then we've got the oh god finally i'm sitting down and i've you know it's just it's my time now and then we've got the carb that goes along with that you know it, it it's just it's all a bit messy because it's mixed up with physical hunger mixed in with emotional hunger mixed in with tiredness mixed in with you know pissed off with the husband you know whatever like there's just a whole host of things that are happening for us at that time so you know, yes, we need to be a little bit smarter about how we use carbohydrates, but clearly it's complicated um, and requires us to take a bit of a curious look at things.
1: So so basically what I'm hearing, <laughs> which I might, might not have got right, this is what we should be doing whatever age we are, basically, because yes. we should be eating a balanced diet. Is there anything that we, um, as menopausal, um, that, I mean, is protein, do we as a, uh, generation, I don't know, eats enough protein anyway, and is that more? Is that it more important as we go into this phase, this menopausal phase, than maybe we got away with before? Because you hear again, it's all these yeah. things that you keep hearing, isn't it? Yeah.
2: So interestingly, if you look at diet survey data, you know, in the UK, we don't undereat protein. Like we, we get plenty of protein. um There is definitely an argument for. Um, increasing per kilogram per per kilogram of body weight the amount of protein um that we eat but really more so um post-menopausally than sort of perimenopausally but the caveat to that is, is to say that actually we do know that if we are able to build more resistance training into our lives when we are perimenopausal we will guard against that loss of lean muscle mass Yeah, and to go alongside more resistance training, we will benefit from higher protein intakes. But not necessarily translated into, right, I now need to go and have a protein shake every day, but really to think about how you space protein out across the day. And traditionally, a British diet might not contain much protein at breakfast, might have a little bit more protein in your chicken sarni at lunch and then we'd have quite a lot of protein at dinner because we'd sit down and we'd have our our main meal right yeah so what's a better way to do it is to think about balancing out protein across the day so at breakfast we are going to need to have things like whole grains nuts seeds dairy um you know eggs and and you know meats etc if we if we want to and if we've got time um but certainly Uh, dairy and plant-based protein sources like nuts and seeds and grains um, will help us to get a better balance of protein at breakfast you know if we're having slices of toast with marmalade we're not going to get as much protein but if the bread is whole grain and it's seeded you will still get um, protein from that and carbohydrates contain protein i think that's yeah. the thing we forget you know gluten yeah. that you know according to some people obviously it's the root of all evil i don't believe that but you know gluten is the protein that we find in wheat containing carbohydrates so carbohydrates are a good source of protein but the whole grain carbohydrates are much richer in protein so they are you know a good option because you'll kill a lot of birds with one stone there so yes protein is important balance of it across the day is key because the body can't utilize loads of it in one hit anyway so we're better off spacing it out yeah. and i do think we need to pay more attention to protein and snacks um so whilst we may traditionally have snacked on you know fruit if we were feeling healthy and biscuits if we weren't you know neither of those things really have much protein in them um so it's an opportunity i think to upskill on the snacks a little bit to choose things like some of the pulse based snacks that you can get to have dairy to have nuts and seeds um to have um eggs like <laughs> <laughs> yeah having a hard boiled egg having that with an, with an oat cake and a little bit of mayo um to look for balance really to have a blend of carbohydrates and protein as a snack is always helpful but to think about the value of snacking rather than it being a sort of a you know an absent minded sort of um yeah um, head in the biscuit tin not really noticing what I'm doing type thing uh is is wise i think as we head into into this time of life and does
1: that, is that sorry does that help the energy sort of if you you're taking it through the day that'll help your energy level yeah
2: we we definitely see dips in in um in blood glucose in the afternoon and we do again know that the the um the menopausal woman is more prone to bigger fluctuations so bigger dips and of course if we get big dips then we get cravings and then our sugar intake is likely to go up um hence, hence the weight
1: Potentially. I'm, and I'm not saying that as a sort of body shame, but, you know, we are talking about that. So
2: this is yeah, this is where, again, we we have to acknowledge that the extent to which we gain weight through these years is going to be influenced by by eating habits. We're not you know, yeah. we're not saying that that isn't playing a part in it. Um, as I say, I think it's really always important to look at the why, you know, n- not the judgment of, 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 of what, but to really think about the what. Okay. This is interesting. Why? Why am I, why am I in this kind of habit? You know, um, then you'll get the answers that you need and you can stay human and problem solve it. So, um, but yes, yeah, certainly it's, it's the balance that really regulates our blood glucose levels and that is is of far more importance in the menopausal years because we just don't have again that oestrogen in place uh with the the same consistency that really just helps to control our you know our metabolic processes essentially
0: yeah well this is instantly making me feel better laura because I, (laughs) i i've been in that panic phase about a year ago Oh my goodness. But you've you've just, you know, what you've just described has just certainly made me feel better. So hopefully our listeners are nodding their heads along and thinking, yeah. yes, we do need to look at things differently.
2: And it's and I guess it's worth also just saying, you know, that that estrogen um and, and the, the lower levels of estrogen will create a more pro-inflammatory state in the body. It will make us um you know it it fundamentally changes so many things at a metabolic level Mm. and all of these factors contribute to weight gain so hence why we can experience weight gain really without having changed much in our in our diets Um, and hence why drilling down into our diets and you know shredding them of 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 food groups or whatever to to try and get that deficit is is really robbing Peter to pay Paul. You know, yeah. in the short term, you, you'll you might notice that you lose a few kilos, but 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 it's not sustainable, and you're 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 losing focus on what is uh, going to help you long term, which is the protection and building of that muscle mass, um, and the right diet to facilitate that to happen um, to the best of it, of its ability.
1: And can, can nutrition help our menopausal symptoms as well? Because, you know, and I know there's a whole range and we talked about that earlier, but I mean, I've noticed when I eat better, <laughs> healthier, you know, more balanced, I suppose, that certain things go away or I don't have them as often. And I, and when I have, you know, a pig out on chocolate, sorry, fate. <laughs> but I feel, I feel a lot worse. Mm. So Does it have an impact, and and how does it? Why does it have an impact? I suppose.
2: Yes, it really does and can have an impact. Um, I think again, we need to be a little bit careful. You'll get a lot of messaging out there, you know, really claiming that food can do can literally do everything. You know, it can it can it's got magic powers. Uh, You know, food is not medicine. Yeah, I think we have to be really clear. But you'll 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 come across some. You know, alternative nutritional practitioners who will very much claim that food is medicine that's not my training that's that's not the evidence-based approach uh, that I take but certainly yes we can see that diets which are richer in plant-based proteins so not necessarily completely um, you know vegetarian or vegan approaches but just generally diets that are richer in plant-based foods um, generally have an easier time of it they they are they are associated with 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 less menopausal symptoms and interestingly um those diets are also associated with entering into menopause later so um as is oily fish um, and as I say with a particular emphasis on legumes so so plant-based protein pe- beans peas lentils that kind of thing so these sorts of foods definitely help we think that there are a number of reasons for that it could be something to do with the antioxidant components that they contain so these phytochemicals which are um, protecting the body against inflammation so as we've said Estrogen lowers our inflammation um, uh, protection, and so if we're eating foods which are anti-inflammatory, then we're really helping helping ourselves out there. Um, They're richer in fiber, so we've then got the gut health conversation going on. They're richer in nutrients, for example, magnesium, which also seems to play a a role in a number of menopausal symptoms, from mood regulation to sleep regulation to muscle contraction. So seems to be covering a number of things there so yeah there's a number of mechanisms through which diets you know that are healthy quote unquote and um contain less highly refined um sugars and and i hate to use the term processed food because that gets overused and, and misinterpreted as well but, you know, you get the general consensus if you're cooking from fresh and you can, you know, you know what's in the food you're cooking, then generally, yes, it's going to have a, a, a higher nutrient density and um, does seem to definitely improve menopausal symptoms. The biggest one, of course, with the, with the biggest body of evidence around it is hot flushes. We can certainly see that the use of isoflavones, um, which we find um in richest concentrations in soya foods um really does seem to reduce the severity of of hot flushes and and in some cases completely eliminate them um so the easiest most accessible way of doing that is to have things like edamame beans um on a daily basis in some shape or form within foods or as a snack
0: oh that's interesting yeah it's really interesting
1: (laughs) and uh, yeah so and and sort of the sugar if we're eating more sort of sugar based that's gonna that has an effect that makes like the hot flushes and and things I mean I get heart palpitations so I always know when I've eaten too much rubbish that those those seem to get worse
2: yes and again there'll be a number of reasons why you know that's happening at a physiological level but yeah we can certainly see from from observational data that the, those sorts of diets are associated with a yeah with a with a worse time of it um but the exact mechanisms we're not sure of yeah
1: but it is really interesting because i i mean i teach pilates as well as canny cross and i do find that a lot of women our age and whether it's our culture that we've as you say you know the age range we're in at the moment we've grown up through the diet culture we've grown up through I'm going to say processed foods, but, you know, like the stabby packet meals and and that sort of thing. Is it a lack of education then in our our, um, cooking ability and our nutrition knowledge, you know, that we are all sort of suffering at the moment?
2: I'm not sure that it is. I think it's just that we are we have done a really good job over the last 20 years of creating a food environment that we're biologically incapable of handling. Uh, yeah. you know i mean i i remember you know certain convenience foods were coming out you know when i was growing up and my mum, you know, purchasing them and us sort of feeling, you know, wow, this is really cool. You just stick it in the toaster and then it pops up and it's all, (laughs) you know, and, um, and looking back now, just thinking, Oh my God, that, that food just was just so, so processed, you know? Um, and this was a mother who, you know, our, our traditional diet was very much meat and two veg, you know, that was, I don't think I ate pasta until I was 14 or something, you know, like it was very, very traditional, so I just think we have got into habits and, and we, we've purchased foods that are marketed very heavily and very cleverly to solve a problem around time and convenience and all these kind of things. And we've we've perhaps just lost sight a little bit of what we're actually eating. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fiber requirements in this country are um, set at 30 grams. You know, that that's pretty hard to achieve. And, and most of us are nowhere near that. Um, and it is very hard to do that when you are, you know, not consciously um, planning meals and 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 cooking them uh, using 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 fresh ingredients, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know. Um, so I don't know. I, I I think also if you think about the snackification trend, that's that's become huge uh, in our, you know, as we've grown up. And if you think about, you know our kids compared to when we were growing up, you know, the the number of snacks that are available and this kind of notion of kind of, you know, I used to pitch up to school. I didn't do it very much, but if, you know, if I ever dared to pitch up at school with a piece of fruit, my kids would just lob it back at my head, you know, (laughs) whereas like when we were growing up, it was like, there weren't a lot of snacks around. It was like, well, maybe you could have a slice of toast or, or maybe you'd have an apple. Like it was, It's just the landscape has completely changed, and you know, if we all just snacked on fruits and veggies, we'd really easily hit the targets for a minimum of five a day. Whereas most of the population only hit about three. Yeah. So we're just making it complicated.
1: (laughs) We are, and I think, and and again, what's coming through to me is that this is really, really important, especially you know the phase we're going through. But actually, the exercise and you know the resistance, it it all it's all becomes one thing, doesn't it? And so. You know, talking about our kids now, if we can educate them in exercise as well and mm. um, sort of the benefits of eating the right foods. Um, mm. hopefully they'll have a and dish. to
2: un- uncouple those two key habits, right, To so uncouple diet and exercise yeah. and to talk about eating and training, you know, we, we, we really owe it to the next generation to, to not tie exercise into calorie burn you know yeah, they are completely separate entities yeah um and and then we can really forage consistent relationships with exercise and you know some of your community might have always been active but for some of them maybe this is a bit of a new leaf you know this is actually i want this to be about being outside being with the animal that i love being in the in fresh air doing something for me you know there's a whole load of other things attached to it isn't there and that's what we yeah. want to be encouraging yeah
1: so uh, we are going to talk about this because we you know in, in some of the podcasts we've done um we've talked about um fasting and I've heard lots of different things for menopause mm. about fasting um and I, I kind of just wondered what your thoughts were on it mm. um, and you know sort of menopausally as well you know does it yeah. have a benefit or
2: yeah it's a, it's a really um, tricky one because the research is still coming and the research that's out there is is quite contradictory. Uh, again I think we have this situation where we've got a theory of what we know about the menopausal body, the fact that it isn't as um, sensitive to insulin, that we've got you know, meals um, or the nutrients of meals hanging around in the bloodstream for longer. We're not clearing them out of that. You know, we're not tidying up after a meal as quickly as we used to. Um, and. We've got this little bit of glucose intolerance, as I say, that sort of creeps in. So taking all that into consideration, you would say, OK, well, hang on then. If we can fast, if we can have periods of time where we're fasted and maybe we can do something like intermittent fasting, where we are um, extending the period of time that we're fasting for, surely that's going to be a good thing. Um, in the research that's really honed in on, on menopausal women specifically, we actually can't really prove that. We can't really show that it offers any sort of superiority. Intermittent fasting compared to calorie-controlled dieting um, does seem to confer a little bit of benefit around reduced waist circumference. So it is appealing, I think, to women for that reason, based on what we've just been talking around yeah. ab- abdominal weight gain. But I always come back to what is sustainable what is going to give consistent, you know, behavior change. And generally, when you look at the research on fasting, the dropout rates from the trials are really high. So that tells us that actually on paper, it might do some good, but in reality, it's quite difficult to stick to it. Um, Certainly dabbling with anything like alternate day fasting, where every other day you're severely restricting your intake or fasting completely is really just really unmanageable in in life, where you you don't go to bed for twenty four hours, you still have to function and probably feed other people. Um, so a more practical method, I think, is intermittent fasting. <clears throat> Whereas I say you're you're restricting your eating window. Sixteen um, eight is a common one that you hear, isn't it? So you're yeah. just eating within within an eight hour window. And I think for some women, it certainly does work. And and the research, you know, shows um that it works not that it's necessarily superior um but th- th- that it is a helpful strategy um but again you've got to think about your day and your life and if you tend to do exercise in the morning then fasting and not eating anything till 12 o'clock it's not really a very good way of doing things you know your, your body is crying out for fuel at a point at which you're starving it of fuel <clears throat> so I always, I'm just, I don't know, I'm just a bit of a realist with these things. I think what's helpful probably is not to be snacking late into the evening. I think if we can try to give ourselves at least a 12 hour fast between breakfast and dinner, that's a really manageable start. And clearly our body benefits from being in a fasted state. We need to give it an opportunity to recover, to recoup. You know, it's a bit like tidying the house when your guests have gone for the weekend, you know, like it's messy, right? And you need to to give yourself that chance to tidy up. And that's what we're saying for our bodies. You know, we can't constantly be putting it in a state where it's having to to do something with those nutrients all the time because it can't go off and tidy up. And that's really important for health. And we can see autophagy gets mentioned. So that's that process by which the body goes and eats the cells that are are no longer functioning. Um, You know, it does lots of really cool stuff in a fasted state. Um, But we have to balance that with functionality and we can't function well um, and have good quality valued living if we're just bloody hungry all day long, right? So we have to strike a balance. Um, I'm but not it's good when I'm
0: hungry. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm not either.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Certainly, you know, certainly not a good parent when I'm hungry, that's for sure. No. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I think that, the, you know, the research is still coming. I don't think we can categorically say that menopausal women should be doing intermittent fasting. It certainly seems to give benefit to some, And others, I think they just quite like it because it gives them a sense of structure. It's something about that, right, you're not eating past eight o'clock. You know, that's what you're not doing. And so something about that seems to then help with the the slightly mindless eating that we can get into in the evenings. Um, But I certainly don't think we have enough research to be categorically recommending it for everybody.
1: No, I've just heard lots about it at the moment. And, um, yeah, it's not something I could do because I do like my food too much and, and exercise-wise, I, yeah, I feel like I my body needs food. So, um, yeah. yeah so is,
0: is there any evidence, Laura, for and, – and obviously in an ideal world, we would be in a very balanced diet, getting enough of, you know, enough fibre, enough protein, enough carbohydrates, enough of all the vitamins and minerals that we need. But is there any evidence for – supplements helping menopausal women is there anything we you would recommend we should maybe look at taking in addition
2: well the supplement industry is is worth a few 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 million isn't it yeah. and um it w- would claim to have have all of the answers you know if you spend half an hour in Holland and Barrett you clearly could you know walk out like you know Claudia Schiffer or whatever I don't know <laughs> um she's probably quite old now as well isn't she um but um Certainly the the botanical supplement aisle for easing of menopausal symptoms has got some, you know, it's got some pretty good evidence behind it, but it's slightly vague. It's a bit wishy-washy. It's a very unregulated industry. So you've got to be a little bit careful about, you know, what you're taking, dosages and things like that. It's all a little bit grey. Um, but certainly things like red clover, sage leaf. Um, you know those tend to come a black cohosh is another one uh they've definitely got some research to suggest that they can help with menopausal symptoms but the, the vast majority of those studies again is looking at things like hot flushes so equally we've got good evidence that that soy does that as well um in terms of nutritional supplements uh vitamin d is really important for winter and autumn so autumn and winter um, we may benefit from additional uh, B vitamins. That's the B complex that really helps to release energy from our food. So that may be of benefit. Um, magnesium is another one that you hear talked about a lot. Um, and this is, again, where it gets tricky because observationally, we can see that low magnesium is associated with, with poor sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you test magnesium supplements in a randomized controlled trial, you actually don't, you can't prove uh, that there's a causal relationship and therefore magnesium supplements categorically do improve sleep. So that's the difference of observational data versus randomized controlled trials. Um, But again, you know, that doesn't stop the supplement industry releasing a whole load of magnesium supplements with health claims on them. And for some women, they may well find that it makes a difference. So I think with all of these things, if you want to um, trial a supplement, you would have a bit of a sense in three months as to whether it was making a difference. Um, If you are taking other medications, it's it's really important that you cross check anything with a a pharmacist or your GP just to make sure that you've not got any interactions between supplements and medications. Um, and, and that would
1: not, sorry would that be hrt if you're taking hrt would any of the supplements um be advised not to take or
2: not to my knowledge but again it's worth a, it's yeah, worth yeah. a conversation with whoever's looking after your hrt um and of course you know there is an argument to say that we are as you say living living busy lives we don't necessarily have um you know have it have it right all the time and some people like to have that sort of safety net of a of a general kind of multivitamin and mineral or a you know a menopausal um you know which will have slightly more magnesium and you know there'll be a few tweaks but fundamentally it's just a multivitamin and mineral supplement. Um and some women feel you know much happier with that safety net but that's a that's a cost isn't it to make that choice to take that supplement every day. and so we can't, yeah, we can't categorically say that, you know, all menopausal women need to be suddenly taking mega doses of this, this or this. Um, but in individual cases, more of a particular nutrient is warranted depending on their dietary intake and, and whatever else they've got going on. Calcium is another one, of course, if you've got somebody who's postmenopausal, who has a history of osteoporosis, whose dairy intake is low, their calcium supplement would certainly be advisable.
1: Can I just go, because this one uh, interests me and sort of heading back a little bit, but anxiety. And I, when I was premenopausal, I didn't really uh, suffer with it, I don't think. But as I'm postmenopausal, that seems to be a bigger thing. Now, whether that's post-pandemic and, you know, that sort of area that we've all been through. But is there anything particular or is it just again the balanced diet that is missing in our diet or something that we could help reduce the anxiety because i again it's the inflammation isn't it and the uh is it cortisol that causing causing the issues is that if i got that right yeah
2: we seem to have um again the estrogen helps to offer protection against uh anxiety because it helps in the production of hormones like serotonin and, and dopamine that you know help to uh, balance out you know that that sort of um fight flight cascade um probably the the heaviest research around food and anxiety takes us to the um to the conversation around gut health really ah. um, we can see that um in the brains uh of those with high anxiety we can see on the mri that um the amygdala is is uh, is firing hard and fast and um, and with um supplementation with probiotics and then a re a retest 12 weeks later uh, we can see that the um the, the nerve endings are firing far less um so more research to be done but certainly the way that um our gut health you know relates to anxiety is to do with the byproducts that our bacteria produce when they feed and these byproducts will cross the blood-brain barrier and that's how they impact on mood and anxiety. So um, feeding our gut health is really important. so that comes again back to variety of, of plant-based foods so that we get plenty of fibers um, and probiotics can be helpful. Again, it would require individual assessment, but they can be helpful for some as well as various other techniques that we use to calm the brain to lower that stress response and Going um, from <laughs> there we go and and of course when we're at when we're anxious we then tend to um get the cravings for you know the, the sugary food because the brain is thinking that we're, we're we're threatened from a survival perspective so of course then we we can sort of make it make it a little bit worse for ourselves. We're in a bit of a vicious circle where we're then eating diets that aren't particularly rich in fibre because we're going for the sugary fixes. Um, and then we're sort of making the problem worse a little bit. So um so yeah the, the gut health part of the equation is really key. And again, we can see in menopause that we get what we call bacterial translocation. So the, again there is something about the change in reproductive hormones that means that we don't um that the diversity of our of our guts changes.
1: And, and that, and,
2: and,
1: yeah and that's really interesting because that's happened to me um and we talked about gluten-free earlier I am gluten-free I'd rather not be but you know, I had to go through that whole process um and that that has changed changed for me over the last you know couple of years and that's mm. I just find that fascinating so it's it's and it's kind of really fascinating to see that the anxiety as well can be connected mm. to it so um mm. Mm. yeah Really yeah. really. So is that.
0: that quite normal for us to develop intolerances like that towards certain foods then in menopause? Uh
2: I don't think we have evidence for that. No. Um it's not um yeah, I mean obviously I don't know anything about Louise's history or case so I can't really say <laughs> but um but but no n- n- not not broadly speaking yeah, in the okay. literature. No.
1: That's fascinating. It is yeah. fascinating what is happening to us. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah um michelle you've got some questions that we can if you've got time we just uh had a few from people
0: yeah i asked on twitter yesterday just if people just had any just random questions let me see so i've got one here which which we've actually already answered in the podcast so it's um i believe soya milk is no good for our hormones is this true now we've already answered this actually that there is some evidence that it can it can help with hot flushes is, is that the same of soya milk i know we talked about um
2: yeah so it's to do with the concentration of uh of isoflavones um mm. but but yeah there's no reason why we need to or should be avoiding um soya milk in um three menopause at all
0: no okay that's good to know thank you um second one i've just got three so, um, somebody's been experiencing just changes in skin during mm-hmm. um, menopause and has given up dairy, which has mm-hmm. stopped red skin, but it's come back. So, she's just asking, is there anything she could do to help her skin during menopause? It's-
2: I mean, nutrition and skin health often go hand in hand, but I wouldn't say that it's anything groundbreaking that you wouldn't already think of you know again it comes back to thinking about vitamins and minerals and where we're getting those from vitamin e is particularly important for skin Um, so that's things like nuts and seeds and avocado um, oily fish fruits and vegetables Um, so again it's thinking about dietary quality and I think when we are playing around with certain food groups dairy um, you know being one of them My recommendation would always be if you want to trial taking out a food group to always then try reintroducing it as well so that you really know for sure whether it's made a difference. Because to exclude a food group um, is is a fairly big call, you know, unless you're absolutely categorically sure it's helped. Um, and if you are avoiding dairy, then obviously your plant based alternatives need to be fortified with calcium. You need to consider your iodine as well, because iodine is the biggest, dairy is the biggest source of iodine in the, in the UK diet. So there are other things that we need to take into account if we're, if we're taking out a food group. Um, and as with all these things, it's diet plays a part, but it's not necessarily the, you know, the, panacea whatever that word is um or of it all
0: yeah and, and finally you know you you probably won't be able to answer this question but I thought it'd be useful just to put into the podcast anyway which is Grace asked um I think I I gather she's she's in she's already reached menopause and says I would like to know when does it end <laughs> like will <laughs> so you will really you always have kind of you know issues to deal with now or or does it get easier
2: well the average age of going through the menopause in the UK is 51 isn't it so depending on how old Grace is you know she she might feel like she's in the trenches with it at the moment but but yes I mean it is you know there will come a point where you are post-menopausal and you may still very much benefit from HRT in in those years um yep but (laughs) but yes I mean it's it 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 yeah, it it does end, but but um we sometimes need to 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 give ourselves a bucket load of compassion to you know who we've become in that time, hey and and what what we want for from the next phase of life.
1: I think it's been fascinating, and I think just to sort of finish off on well, again, from this whole thing, you know we're we're talking about running, we're talking about you know doing exercise and and that's really important. And just having a balanced diet throughout the day is my takeaway from this, I think.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's so funny, isn't it? Because I think a lot of messaging around nutrition wants to sound a little bit more sensationalist than yeah. that. And perhaps yeah. I, you know, I feel a little bit boring and thinking, gosh, is that, is that all we're concluding? But, but I suppose the reality of achieving that for women is sometimes a lot more complicated than it appears. Mm. hence why we've got to sometimes do some deeper work around our food relationships and uh, reasons why we eat other than physical hunger um because yes that is the answer but achieving that is certainly not straightforward um you know hence where where people like myself come in but um but yes it's just it's taking that curious lens isn't it to say am I eating what I think I'm eating (laughs) um Uh and is there any room for for improvement yeah and and having sort
1: of done it a little bit you know over a couple of months just to sort of see how things go it, it made a huge improvement and to me it it you know I did lose some weight which I was you know I had put on weight and mm-hmm. again and again it goes back to that this is yeah, I've grown up all my life I've been lucky because I've been you know fairly mm-hmm. slim um and then you know whatever issues you have but the, the energy and the, the feeling I had when I was exercising was absolutely amazing so mm-hmm. that's what what sort of inspires mm-hmm. me now to, to to make sure that I'm eating mm-hmm. and I have my bad days I love my chocolate as I might have mentioned already in this podcast <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but those aren't bad you know those aren't bad days are they I think no. are speaking to there is flexibility like yeah. you know we you know perfectionism around around the diet will only trip you up you know what you're yeah. trying to cultivate there is flexibility and that sounds like that's what you've got yeah
1: and I think it's also really important to add in and I think you sort of mentioned this earlier just because we're going through the menopause whether we're peri or menopausal, uh, postmenopausal, or it doesn't mean your life is at the end and it doesn't mm-hmm. want to change and I just I just think that is so important you know just we can do things and we can look after ourselves. And yeah, I just think it's really important. We can still achieve and be competitive. <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Michelle, have you got anything else? Or, or Laura, have you got anything else that we haven't talked about or you feel we should have done?
2: Uh I don't think so I mean I think it's just a nice opportunity for people to yeah come into my community for um you know for more of this kind of chatter I run um the Nourish Lounge which is every couple of weeks over Zoom um which is really just me having a talk about a subject in a little bit more detail um bringing in some guests as well to help me um to do that sometimes um so I think it's it's yeah it's just good to keep keep the conversation flowing isn't it good things happen when when women get together so um so so where can
1: people find we will put it in the show notes but if you just want to tell people where they can find you
2: so um i'm at the menopause dietitian.co.uk and that's dietitian spelt with a t um and over on instagram at menopause.dietitian um and yeah the best ways to work with me is either just to come into my email community um, which you can do via the link in my bio. Um, you can join the pause to nourish um, course which is self-paced so it's always running and um, gives people the opportunity to do some of this work with support from afar Uh, or you can work with me on a one-to-one basis if you feel that you need to delve a little bit deeper on a more yeah on a more individualized level Um, so yeah lots of ways in which you can get help and I'm sure you might get a few questions after this somehow
0: (laughs) (laughs) So thank you Laura. anytime really <laughs> me to be kinder to myself and more accepting of what's yes. happening so i yes. really appreciate that thank you we hope that you've all enjoyed our podcast today um and any questions for laura then do get in touch we hope you've enjoyed today's episode don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and if you get a moment, please leave us a review. We'll see you next time on Cross Conversations. Thank you to our sponsor, Get Stronger, Run Faster 5K. Find out more about the course at the link in the show notes. It's great for canicrossers and runners to improve their 5K time and keep up with the dogs.
1: And it will really help you to enjoy running more and avoid injury.